It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. going on everyone what's going on welcome back to mic'd up on home radio i'm your host mika gadston and uh yeah it's friday it is uh september the 20th and uh yeah it's gonna be a great show i'm, I'm very prepared for today's show so <laughs> what that means is that um this is a like with most topics i do I care immensely about what I'm talking about. I don't want to just get on the mic and just ramble. But this topic really uh, hit home for me uh, for a number of reasons. Um, just oh, before we get into everything, Mic'd Up is um, we're recording live, y'all, from uh, from the workshop food court here at 1503 King Street uh, in downtown Charleston. Remember, uh, OWN Radio is a nonprofit uh, community radio station, so please make sure you head to our website and check out ways that you can support us. If you like to, you can support us um, at, at our website, um, which is, um, what is it, ownradio963.org. Uh, yeah, so yeah, again, I'm Mika, and um, t- today I want to talk about something that's very important to me, um, and that's always going to be um, culture here in Charleston. I identify as African American, um, I identify as black mainly. I-, I know I am Gullah Geechee in terms of heritage, in terms of my father's heritage that he passed down to me and my siblings. Um, and um, I live in the South. I was born and raised in the North. Uh, and I just, I really have to always uh, intentionally bring up the discussions around culture here because we, we need to, right? And because we know that the, the, the history of America and specifically the history of, of, of black people in the South um, is very, the history is, is very, it's complicated, it's storied, it's, it's, it's deep, it's rich, it's complex, and, and it goes through a wide swath of issues. So I'm going to grab my pads, and I'm going to be uh, grabbing a number of books and, and just pointing you guys in the right direction to help lead this conversation I'm having. And the title of this show that I gave on Instagram and on, across all my social media platforms was um, All Kinfolk Ain't Kinfolk. So just to... We want to talk about cultural appropriation in the in Charleston's culinary food and bev industry, uh, food and bev industries here. Cultural appropriation, specifically um, appropriating Black Southern history, Black Southern culture, um, to promote Southern food or uh, maybe a, a whitewashed version of of soul food classics or soul food the genre. I'll refer to it as a genre, I guess, a little bit. Um, just the appropriating of our culture uh, from like marketing, just to be successful, just to, you know, why is all cultures, why or why is any culture appropriated? You know, because it's fly, right? Um, and people want to replicate that. And it's not, this is not a conversation about exclusion. This is not a conversation about divisiveness. This is a conversation about inclusion, about holding space for cultures, about uh, being culturally appropriate. I won't use the word sensitive. Um, and this is not a conversation about what chefs can cook what food. 
I'm not having that. I'm not having that Kim Kim K wear box braids discussion. It's deeper than that. Um, I do believe that when you um, promote a good or service that has uh, ties to a specific identity, it's important that you are responsible with that. It's important that you uplift those people that um, that originated that culture or that or that um, originated that form of cultural expression it's important that not only that you hold space for these these folk but that you create access especially if you're a person of privilege whatever your privilege may be it's important for you to open doors and so um what got me on this topic originally i wanted to talk about the recently um disclosed findings from the i believe it's the organization's acronym or um abbreviation is cna there was a current audit there was a recent audit conducted to discover uh, racial bias discover whether or not there is any racial bias on the Charleston Police Department force. Um, I was going to talk about that, but culture really just kept running to the forefront of my consciousness, and I will hold space for that conversation about racial bias. I kind of want to have a, a deeper conversation, maybe invite my friends from the Avery to join me um, to talk about the disparities report that I still reach to and reference because they had a they had some findings regarding policing in the Avery report that would really inform the discussion that I could have about the recent news, um, which the Post and Courier uh, did did report yesterday they did in fact find racial bias on the police force so i won't get into that i'll, I'll jump back into culture i, I think culture in, in um informs conversations about bias and about racism and how it's pervasive and how it seems to seep through so many different other areas of our lives so uh, that's why i kind of brought it up a little bit like in a janky way that i tend to do um but yeah culture and and whose culture we embrace whose culture we uplift and acknowledge Whose, whose culture we invest in, um, you know, that that all plays into how you see a people, how you see, how you view and treat a community. And so that's why it's important to have really rich conversations about culture here in Charleston because a lot of black culture, a lot of indigenous culture has been whitewashed and erased from the history books. So it's important that we speak life back into it. We breathe life back into truths that, that we all know. So, um, so check it out. So boom. I was at the library uh, this week um, preparing for the show, preparing for the audit show that I did not do, that I am not doing. And um, on my way in the library, the main branch on Calhoun Street here downtown, um, you know, I always look to see if the latest copy of the of the city paper uh, is available. And it was. And it, it caught my eye because it featured... Um, a friend, some artwork from a friend of mine and also an acquaintance I just met uh, in the local music scene. So, of course, I grabbed it real quick. Then I see, um, and that was like the, the feature story was about the music industry, right? And, and streaming and recent, um, a recent protest that took place. Shout out to um, Angelie, shout out to Nisi Blues and Contour for, for um, speaking up for artists here, black artists, specifically artists of color uh, here um, trying to earn a living. Um, but beyond that, I saw on the cover uh, a, a little caption saying Kinfolk, a new restaurant. Now, and I had heard about this new restaurant. It's on Johns Island. And um, but the name really got me because I'm like, oh, shoot, we got some soul food on Johns Island. As soon as I hear the, the phrase Kinfolk, I immediately think of all of the colloquial phrases that have that I frequently use. Um, case in point, all all skin folk and kin folk. That's something that Black people talk about all, often when um, kind of uh, dissecting, you know, uh, whether or not uh, every member of our community holds true to our values and, and um, yeah, <laughs> holds true to our values. And we, you know, we talk about being the same color. You know, all Black people essentially are not a monolith. 
And, you know, even though we're the same color, we might not all be fighting for the same um, the same things. And so that's what that phrase, um, that's how I use the phrase. And so when I see kinfolk, I think immediately Southern, I think soul food, and I think it's a cool name. So um, I turn to the page, and it's a review on the restaurant. I'm like, oh, this is great. I get to get a review because, I, it, to my knowledge, it's a relatively new restaurant. And it's on a uh, it's on a part of John's Island that I don't tend to go to often because it's on its way to Kew and Seabrook. We can talk about that later. <laughs> um, but it's a little far out. I live on Wamala, so I'm on John's Island often, but I'm not on that side. And um, so I'm looking, and, and they're talking about the hospitality and how you're warmly greeted. And it was a favorable review. It was a favorable review written by, um, I, her name escapes me, but a writer for the city paper. And um, then I saw a picture featured inside. Um, the, fixture, the, the featured picture was of a dish of Nashville-style st- Nashville hot chicken. And immediately I'm like, huh. Okay, so it's a soul food place. Then they're they're creating, um, they're recreating, um, a version of Nashville hot chicken. And I knew about Nashville hot chicken because of a, a an article I read back in June or February. I think believe it was published in February. But I read this whole story about the the origins of Nashville hot chicken, um, and how it emerged from the black uh, community in Nashville eighty years ago. So I'm like, oh, this is this is dope. Maybe these people are, um, maybe these are like black folk that relocated from Nashville or some, whatever. I just said, wow, this, this is amazing to have hot chicken here. And um, then I did more research. I Googled another story um, because um, the identity of the proprietors, their names were disclosed, I believe. But um, but they're, I wanted to see their face. Maybe I'm going to keep it a buck. I wanted to see their faces. Um, and so I just looked up another article that was, I believe, published at least digitally in the city paper, and I and, it, and I came to see that the proprietors of Kinfolk were two Caucasian, or I'm assuming Caucasian brothers who were natives of the area, um, natives of James Island, who had went off to um, experience um, some what looks like some success, um, being private chefs in in the Caribbean and in New York City, and they went to you know I believe they were they were educated locally, but of course had other experiences other culinary experiences and they look like two dope brothers and I, and I hate giving prefaces but I'm going to preface this is not about bashing the owners of kinfolk right it's not about bashing them I'm not vilifying them I'm not telling you not to eat at kinfolk what I'm trying to say is that I I came to several conclusions about this establishment prior to learning the identity of the proprietors based on that phrase that's used um, most commonly in the African-American community. And so what that made me think more, um, I guess, more critically about was who gets to use what type of phrasing or not who gets to use or how often um, black phrases, black colloquialisms, um, how often is black imagery used to pro- to propel or to promote a specific brand of Southern either lifestyle or experience. And we see it often. In fact, we see it every day, most of, more than more than likely. If you have enjoyed Aunt Jemima pancakes since you know childhood, like I have, and Aunt Jemima syrup, if you've ever eaten cream of wheat, um, if you ever have eaten Uncle Ben's rice, we see the likeness of Black folk on foods to relay a specific message of uh, trustworthiness because Black folk in the kitchen historically, especially in the South and on plantations, excuse me, on labor camps, um, Black folk have been 
closely uh, associated with cooking and trustworthiness and that affable mammy and um, that oftentimes controversial racist uh, figure that you'd see on Cream of Wheat. Um, and so I'm not saying that what Kinfolk is doing with the name of their restaurant is akin to imagery used um, on the cover of an Aunt Jemima box, but I will say it's a, it's, it's a subtle nod to a specific community. And I hope, and I don't know because I haven't visit, visited the establishment, nor have I reached out to the proprietors for any type of comment, but I hope that there is a brand story that explains the name because it really is a nod and I'm being I guess a little generous I think it's explicit I, I think deep down I really do think that it's explicitly trying to point to black southern food um in its name uh I, I well let me let me just my own scientific research which is like all my all my peoples right all my all the white folks that I've, I've, I've ever loved and interacted with ever lived with ever anything played with went to concerts with i've never heard them use the the phrase kinfolk i know that's an unscientific um way to figure out well who uses this word who uses this phrase the most all i know is i ain't met a, a white person yet who's used the phrase kinfolk so i'm being a little generous when i say it's a nod to black culture i think it, it quite it's quite poignant and also when you're selling things like fried chicken in a nashville hot chicken is, is specifically black like let's let's keep it all the way 100 Nashville hot chicken is black. I don't care who's selling it now in Australia, who's selling it now in Korea, who's selling it now in Toronto, or, you know, I don't care about Hattie B's. Nashville hot chicken is black. It was a black invention. It was kept from mainstream consumption because of Jim Crow. It was created by Prince Thornton, a black man. There's a beautiful story, which I am going to play. Um, I'm going to dig up that clip right now um, on YouTube. A story, the story of um, how this hot chicken, let me make sure I put the aux cord down, um, how, uh, how hot chicken came to be. And you're like, well, Mika, what are you, what are you saying then? If you're saying don't, that you're not like aiming at the restaurant and you're saying that it's not a problem that they made this hot chicken, what are you saying? And I, all I'm saying is that um, it's important to ask critical questions. That, like it would have it been great. I'll, let me get let me give the author of the review in the city paper some really um some credit because she did address the origins of Nashville hot chicken. It looks like she read the same article I read in in the New Yorker um regarding uh the history of Nashville hot chicken and its black origin. So shout out to her for um and now what I'm going to do when I can turn my back um I'm going to get the article. When I play the clip, I'll get the article and give her credit, um, bring, bring her, say her name and give her credit because she did acknowledge the um, complicated history of that chicken um, and how it came to be. Um, and, and I'll play a little bit of that clip from the New Yorker. They actually have an audio um, version of the um, of the article, so I'll be able to play it for radio, and it'll go into a little bit of the history of the hot chicken. But so, if you're gonna have a, a restaurant called um, Kinfolk, and then serve signature dishes that are, have been strongholds in the African American community, I think you owe I think you owe the public a little bit more transparency. I'd love to see white proprietors, especially in a, in a segregated industry and, and a misogynist industry such as food and here in Charleston, I'd love to see white proprietors actually use and leverage their privilege to promote and to amplify the cultures that they borrow from quite readily to make profit. Um, if, if you know me, if you follow
follow me across social media, you understand that I'm a critic also of y'all's fave, um, Sean Brock. I'm not a big Sean Brock fan at all. Um, uh, you know, he's from the Appalachian Mountains, and he's he was, you know, I've just seen him take liberties with the culture. I'm not saying Sean Brock does not work hard. I'm not saying Sean Brock is not a skilled chef. I'm not saying any of that. But what I will say is that I think the way he's allowed to kind of interact with soul food um, and to reinvent or reintroduce versions of, of, I guess, modernized versions, and I'm saying that with like a frown on my face, modernized versions of soul food, I think is problematic. And also, I don't think it does, um, I don't think it advances the culture. Oh, today would be the day the Wi-Fi is janky. Ugh, that's crazy. All right, so um, I'm going to play the clips eventually. Let me, let me get the article. Okay, so... A lot of Wi-Fi decides to either play me or <laughs> let me see if I just let me see if I'm, the Wi-Fi is just tricky, y'all. This show is, and then like I get here early. I always come to the station early because like I like to set up. And then today I was just off my game, like stuffing my face with food. So um, I don't know what's up with the Wi-Fi. Hopefully it'll wave in and out soon. It's really slow right now. I'm gonna close couple of windows all right and so okay so i have the city paper in front of me um again the i'll read the front page of the city paper this is for the week of this is issue number seven week of september 18th 2019 and the art the the article that caught my eye was kinfolk welcomes you uh welcomes you with hot chicken on John's Island. So hot chicken is a signature dish that's being um, served there. So that really, it really uh, caught my eye. So let me turn to the article and give her name because I just keep calling her her, and that's not cool. I don't even know if that's her profile. The name of the uh, the person who wrote the um, article is uh, Vanessa Wolf. So yeah, shout out to Vanessa for um she did she did I she did I those know those who know me know I'm very tough on on cultural critics to hear. She did it, like I said, acknowledging the, the history of hot chicken is 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 beyond important. It's, it's very important. I think if anyone opens that shack, I'd love to hear from the proprietors, like how they come, how they came to the conclusion of, um, hey, we're going to sell this hot chicken. Cool, Wi-Fi is up. All right, so I'm going to play. Um, this is going to be Ms. Davida Davison. And this um, speech or this... Um, this presentation was done about two years ago or three years ago um, at the 2016 Change Food Fest. Um, and this is all about, I believe, just raising consciousness and the, and the level of discourse in and around um, diversity, inclusion and race issues. So I'm going to play the first like six minutes of this presentation. And it gives you a story. It gives you background on the Nashville Hot Chicken and black businesses in this area, in this uh, field of expertise. I'm going to make you a little bit hungry through my presentation, if you don't mind. But let me just say this. When Kentucky Fried Chicken created this dish that was inspired by one of Nashville's most iconic dishes, Andre Prince Jeffries, queen mother and founder and owner of Prince's Hot Chicken Shacks, was quoted as saying this, Lord have mercy. <laughs> It really has come full circle. Since decades ago, Kentucky Fried Chicken asked my great uncle, could they buy his hot chicken recipe? 
Let me tell you a story about Andre Princess Jeffrey's great uncle. Back in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, there was a man by the name of James Thornton Prince. Ooh, he was a tall, good-looking, handsome man, a ladies' man, people would say. Well, let me tell you, one of his lady friends got really upset with him, got tired of his philandering ways, and she wanted retribution because James had stayed out all night and he came home wanting breakfast. So she did what any woman would do, she fried him some chicken. And she looked in the kitchen and found all the spiciest items that she could find. No one knows what went in that first batch of chicken. But she spiced that chicken to what she thought was going to be beyond edible. But she was surprised. When James sat down at the breakfast table and took a bite of the chicken, she prepared herself. Would he be mad? Would he whimper? Would he stump out? What would he do? But James took a bite of that chicken, and he loved it. He loved it so much, he took it to his brothers, and his brothers loved it. And as the story goes, the woman is no longer in James's life. She disappeared, but her idea of hot chicken lived on forever. And the Prince brothers went on to create the barbecue chicken shack. James went on to run that chicken shack. James's brother, after James died, Willie, he went on to run that chicken shack. And when Willie died, his wife Maud went on to run that chicken shack. And in the 1980s, when it was time for a new generation of princes to run the chicken shack, great aunt Maud asked this woman, Andre, Prince Jeffries, to run the family business, and she did. And the first thing she did when she took over the business is she renamed it Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. So let's be very clear here, and it's important for me to tell you this story, because I want you to remember that hot chicken was created, invented, and locally popularized by Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. It's important to know that 80 years later, there's a wave of what I call second wave hot chicken joints that's opening all over the world. You guys have one right here in New York City, in Brooklyn. You have what's called Peach's Hot House. In LA, they have something that's called Howling Rays. In Columbus, Ohio, they have hot chicken takeover. In Australia, they have Bell's hot chicken. And right in Prince's hometown, in Nashville, Tennessee, they have Hattie B's hot chicken. And I think it's really important for you all to know that hot chicken, particularly in the African-American community, was more than just about eating chicken. Going to Prince's in Nashville, Tennessee was almost like a pilgrimage. It was a rite of passage. It was a badge of honor to go there and eat hot chicken. So you all can imagine how taken aback I was, how surprised I was when Food Republic published this article in August that said, meet the man who launched the Nashville hot chicken craze. And I thought, oh, really? Are they about to do an article about James Thornton Prince? Because he's the man who launched hot chicken. But as I began to read the subtext, it says, John Lasseter of the famous Hattie B's on the past, the present, and the future of hot chicken. And ladies and gentlemen, this bothers me for a couple of reasons. It bothers me because I don't think that white voices should be centered around a dish that was created, invented, launched, and made popularized by black businesses 80 years ago. It bothers me because I don't think this article goes deep enough. It does not explain the fundamental reason why Hattie B's, and I'm not begrudging them for their success. I think their business is great. 
But I think it's really important for us to realize the fundamentals of why a Hattie B's is perceived as being famous and in many cases more successful than the chicken joints that are owned by African-American businesses. That's where I think this article missed out. You see, what folks fail to realize is that when entrepreneurs of African-American descent, particularly around food, have major expertise of creating a dish like hack chicken, and I'm going to add to that list now collard greens since Neiman Marcus wanted to sell them for $66 a bowl plus $15 shipping and handling. I'm going to go ahead and add collard greens to the dish too. But when African-American entrepreneurs don't grow rich from that dish, it's not because Hattie B's brought in a chef like John Lasseter. It's not because he went to culinary school and his chicken tastes any better. There's a couple of reasons why. The first reason why it's still pretty hard for black folks to go to culinary school. And when they go, you can then go out and leverage and get the respect and recognition. It's still really hard for black folks to get access to bank loans so they can open up hot chicken joints in locations that are desirable and high traffic and prime time locations. And more importantly, I don't want you all to forget this. It's really hard for entrepreneurs of color to get access into networks that have mentors, that have industry expertise to help them create a business model that's scalable. Hattie B's had that, right? Hattie B's had the model. That's the reason why. What they have. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's Davida Davison. Um, you can Google her. You can go on YouTube and just she's she gives an array, just amazing speeches and presentations on uh, food justice, food inequality, um, uh, racial justice in that area, uh, access to quality food, healthy food choices in Detroit. Um, so um, that that exactly her sentiments, um, because the actual New Yorker art article quoted from that presentation her her sentiments i just i can't improve upon like they're they're just solid um there are so many barriers for not just uh women but black folk uh here locally there's so many barriers for uh for us to enter into the food um the food industry here uh there's so many barriers especially when you're a person of color and so knowing that and knowing you know when we do create something um shout out to the uh, to nanas shout out to hannibal's um, you know, local black owned Martha Luz, black owned establishments who have held on for so long and carved out a place for themselves on the peninsula, which is so super hard for black businesses and brown businesses to, to survive yet thrive on the peninsula. But, you know, it's so hard for those kind of businesses to emerge. And um, a, a few weeks ago, I had my friend Chef Elena Ruth on, and she always communicated to me how tough it was for her to be a chef, to work in kitchens in various either, you know, hot, um, and within hospitality and other air, and other kinds of kitchens. And how I came across Chef Elena Ruth was by virtue, I believe she participated in the, the Soul Food Sessions, uh, a Charlotte, North Carolina-based uh, initiative that was funded by the Coca-Cola uh, company, or an arm of Coca-Cola, it was a um, it was a soul food sessions that took place at the Dewberry. That's her how her name started ringing off, um, and people started to come to me about her work and and her juices, um, it, because it took a vehicle like soul food sessions to be at the Dewberry, such a notable um, uh, 
hotel property here on the peninsula, you know, it took it took that type of exposure. To, and that's what a lot of black entrepreneurs in the food industry need. They need the assistance of a big um, a, a, some sort of entity to help um you know, just to help them to, to find their way and get exposure and amplify, you know, what kind of services or goods they offer. Um, I had a conversation with an industry insider yesterday, a lengthy conversation. And um, one thing that struck me, um, one of many things that struck me in that conversation was for black women here who want to cook, they are relegated to doing desserts. And doing maybe, and I'm not saying desserts is less intense because, A, I'm not, a, I'm not in that world, so who am I to gauge the you know the 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 level of of you know hard work or whatever but but to be relegated to just baked goods i think also feeds into a stereotype about black women um you know sweet potato pies and everything and even with the soul food sessions um and it was it was there was an article in both i believe the the washington post had an article um, that referenced some of the chefs that were involved, but also the city paper did a good job. Uh, and they talked about that. We're more than just fried chicken. So imagine being a black woman and you're passionate about like maybe French cuisine or Italian cuisine and, and being perpetually told and steered and pushed into a direction where you can only create things that people associate your, your, your cultural identity with. Imagine being pigeonholed career-wise into just doing one thing. And shout-out to the black, the black cooks out there like Denitra with Swank Desserts, who, who does phenomenal, phenomenal high-end. Like, I wish I was that girl, right? I wish I was that girl that was, like, having, like, girly parties and stuff. I would buy, I would buy her stuff. I could buy it regardless. I need to support her. Uh, but it's just, like, she sells these really cute, sophisticated, high-end dessert. I'm going to call them dessert experiences. But imagine if, if Denitra wanted, and I, don't, I haven't, I've never spoken to her about the rigors of, 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 of cooking in, in Charleston. But I do know recently she launched the Kickstarter to find the resources to, to get her business a, a brick and mortar to move into a brick and mortar and that just shows you that a lot of black chefs um really have these crazy barriers before them before they even experience success so um which i do want to give a shout out to denitra also again to chef elena ruth you know for women who are really just being bold and really carving out their own space here uh even throughout all the turmoil um but just yeah you know so so women are relegated i i want to know where the female Sean Brock is. I want to know where the black female Sean Brock is. You know, how do we get a man from the Appalachian Mountains from West Virginia? How do we have him parachute in? Granted, with his skill set, and he was in, he, again, he works hard and he's not without skill, but how do we have someone from the outside parachute in and quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes, popularize Southern food and black Southern food and call it modern? How is he able to write forwards um, in, in soul food cookbooks? With uh, featuring big leafy collard greens on the front of the book, how is he able to write a forward that says soul food is uh, is is not specific to a culture? It's it's from family to fa- it moves from its uh, definition moves from family to family, and that's complete another BS. How do we have people like that who do not hold enough space for black uh, cultural expressions in food? How do we how do we have that happen and not uphold our own who are doing Sean Brock like quality food, right? And that that is culturally appropriate for them to cook. Um, I know you're probably saying, well, you can't have it both ways. Black people need to be able. I'm saying if you want to cook that soul food, if you want to cook the Gullah, uh, the Gullah cuisine, that's because that's completely different from soul food. Right. That's the other thing. Black food, black southern food is not monolithic at all. Like I learned that the hard way. I learned that the hard way. 
you compare bar get into that barbecue discussion if you want to I'll never do that again but not only that like I just discovered hash and rice because I went to a black owned establishment in West Columbia called True Barbecue I never had hash and rice didn't know it was a staple learn more about that it was phenomenal as was their chopped pork it was amazing um you know it, so so but I learned too also that there's other like if you go to Davusky Island and you have Sally Ann she cooks some things that are specific to the Gullah community. So, it, it, you know, soul food is just not this monolithic thing. It draws on so many different things, but it does come from our African um, experience here. Uh, our, uh, it comes from our time as, as spending time in the kitchens. And it was very labor intensive to work on a labor camp and um, and to work for a plantation um, for a plantation owner, labor camp owner, it was very labor intensive. A lot of cooks uh, ran away. You know, they were, you know, they practiced resistant bondage. A lot of them, a lot of people faked being chefs or uh, being cooks because it gave them more um, flexibility, mobility to be in markets and they wouldn't be questioned. Their presence wouldn't be questioned in certain in certain settings. Um, you know, our our history, our ties to cooking this kind of food is so deep and it is it's filled with trauma it's filled with joy it's filled with family reunions it's filled with uh marginalization so it's important that we hold space for those who originated this these dishes and that we acknowledge um hey we might need to forfeit our privilege right here maybe not call the restaurant kinfolk or if we do have an explanation um that justifies why it is the um the hattie b's hot chicken restaurant that was referenced in that clip i just played the as it goes they have three women in their family three white women with the name hattie again i conducted a very scientific poll which consisted of my mother and my father who are both born in the jim crow south and i asked them did they know any white people named hattie and they started laughing uproariously like they would not stop laughing very scientific polling. Um, we concluded that I don't know if that story is true. Maybe it is. Y'all send me something, you know, <laughs> send me some links. They said that they had three white women in their family named Hattie. I'm, maybe, maybe I need to read more, you know, Mockingbird, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, I wanted to read from, um, I bought a couple books in because I did do research um, uh, about this topic and there are a few books. I'm just going to say the names of the title, and I'm not going to quote from each book today for interest in time, uh, for the interest of time. Um, the one book that is like, everyone's been talking about this book uh, for over a year now, um, The Cooking Gene, The Cooking Gene um, by Michael W. Twitty. And I know he's a frequent uh, face. I see him all the time on PBS NewsHour. Um, I see him a lot on PBS, period, talking to, you know, uh, Louis Gates and Henry Louis Gates. And, um, you know, the name of his book, again, is The Cooking Gene, G-E-N-E, and it's uh, subtitled A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the South. That's a great book to pick up. Um, it's got recipes, and it's got some other anecdotes in there. I think I might read just a quick sentence from that. The other book that caught me off guard at the library um, was written by Kelly Fanto Dietz. Um, Dietz spelled D-E-E-T-Z. And it's called Bound by Fire, Bound to the Fire. How Virginia's Enslaved Cook, excuse me, let me read it again. Bound to the Fire, How Virginia's Enslaved Cooks Helped Invent American Cuisine. 
And um, it starts off with something very important. It was it's the introduction. It's called the myth. And um, it goes into, like, um, all these different people who reach for Aunt Jemima's um, and Uncle Ben's and other other iconic foods that have been uh, closely associated with black trustworthiness and black co- co- uh, cooking. Um, and then the second paragraph says, In American popular culture, enslaved cooks have been either portrayed as Uncle Tom's or romanticized by popular image of Aunt Jemima. As one of the most prevalent and lasting images of slavery, the black cook is found in everything from grocery ads, cartoons, and as a result, American consumers have become accustomed to this imagery. Having the picture of Erastus um, on a box of cream of wheat or Aunt Jemima pancake mix is, is it, uh, mm, pancake mix in your cupboard leads to this uninformed yet intimate familiarity with these icons. The idea of the non-fictional black cook has become ingrained in American domestic culture, sitting alongside canned goods and on grocery store shelves and at the breakfast table. Without questioning the reality without questioning without questioning the reality of their position in American history. Alright, so they're saying that like we grow up with these images just right there in our cupboards and on our breakfast tables and we don't question whether or not like what was it like for an uh, aunt jemima figure or you know and it wasn't easy it wasn't an easy life at all was rigorous and was demanding a lot of people didn't like that kind of grueling work um that came um and, and the politics that came with um with um cooking um i'm gonna read one more paragraph um this is the last paragraph of a of a chapter that was entitled um in dining colon Black food on white plates. It reads, enslaved plantation cooks single-handedly transformed American food and gave birth to Southern cuisine. The West African ingredients and cooking techniques passed down through generations, melded with European methods and ingredients, and allowed cooks to create distinct menus. The, these contributions are undeniable, yet their cultural roots are often ignored or forgotten. And that's kind of the 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 issue I take with a lot of these uh, these restaurants. I'm singling out kinfolk because they're making news and they're new. But honestly, it's not just kinfolk. Um, I'm going to share an anecdote real quick um, that I wanted to leave the show off with, but I forgot. Um, so back when I was a campaign manager, I found myself in the home of a prominent and wealthy white woman, older white woman in Mount Pleasant. So it was like one of those like closed-door fundraisers for like intimate friends, a high-dollar you know, intimate fundraiser on Mount Pleasant. And I, I didn't know who this, na- this lady was. I didn't know her name or anything like that. But she, but quickly found out she was she was prominent. Um, she was well-known and she was wealthy. Um, while we were in the house, um, uh, the that, that candidate uh, was Marguerite Willis. So this was a high-profile race. This is a woman who was running for governor. All right. So Marguerite Willis came in and, you know, she did her little spiel, how she wants to, like, you know, have teachers Skype in the classrooms and become robots or some nonsense she was talking about. But anyway, Marguerite was talking and, and making her case. And, and, and what I was noticing both before Marguerite Willis began talking and during was that the one, the homeowner, the older white woman um, had invited a black woman to be in the space now of course i notice every black person in these spaces because usually i'm either one or one of two or three and quite literally i was one of three black people in the room and we all were working <laughs> so i was working for a can for a candidate my other another black woman was working for marguerite willis and then this woman i 
I, I'm saying she's I'm going to arrive at the conclusion she was working in some capacity because what I saw was the older woman just kept asking her for her opinion to taste the hors d'oeuvres, to taste the fare that had been laid out for us to enjoy, to taste the punch. And the woman just kept giving her approval or, you know, uh, giving suggestions. And I remember just being distracted from what um, what Willis was saying. I was so distracted and I, I just I kept looking at this interesting dynamic um, and I'm and I kept kept thinking like, wow, this this black woman either gave this woman all these recipes or was just deeply influential in this woman's kitchen. And it wasn't just, hey, she came in to cook for me. It was more like, did I perfect these recipes? And I come to find out, and I won't disclaim, I won't disclose the name of the business. Come to find out that that the woman, the older white woman's home, the homeowner, the host, she's the mother of a prominent local biscuit maker, and so. It, it to me it always informed now I still eat those biscuits but to me that all that led into okay white person cooking biscuits not not you know not a not a crime but interesting and then the brand story is oh this was passed down for generations in my family just a very vague story about oh this was passed down my mom used to make biscuits and i mean if you're southern your mom probably did make biscuits regardless of color um, but it was just interesting after seeing the wealthy homeowner host this high dollar fundraiser and then see this black woman come in and specifically come in to interact with the food, not with the guests, not sit, not, you know, watch TV, not clean, specifically come in to talk and taste and interact with the food. It made me think, huh, maybe those biscuits came from a black woman. Maybe that, that famous biscuit recipe wasn't just passed down from from Meemaw. Maybe it came from you know Mammy Smith, right? And and I, I I mean that's the conclusion I arrived at. That you know we know that a lot of black a lot of Southern food is influenced heavily, if not almost exclusively, by its origins, which is deeply rooted in the African American community. You're listening to Miked Up on Ohm. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. We're recording live from the Ohm Radio Studios, which is located at 1503 King Street down here. Um, down here, down here on the peninsula, down here. Okay, I wanted to play one more clip. We're talking about um, the cultural appropriation of soul food here in Charleston. Um, and we started off talking about the new restaurant on John's Island that's featuring um, Nashville hot chicken, which is a historically black dish. Um, we're talking about how other images and, and other colloquial phrases have been used and, and appropriated to sell that classic Southern uh, soul food experience, dining experience. Um, and, yeah, so the next thing I wanted to do is play a portion of that uh, audio clip from, um, again, Wi-Fi is trying to play me today, y'all. Y'all going to kick this. Let me hit refresh. I'm going to play, um, if if it's available, the audio clip from um, the audio version, just a portion of the audio version of the New Yorker article um, where I, this is where I learned about the origins of Nashville hot chicken. I don't eat spicy food, so I never was even curious about, um, you know, such a dish. I didn't understand why people would just subject themselves to, to like insane heat you know but i know it's just like people just like that so yeah i'm gonna start i'm not gonna start at the beginning i'm gonna start at the eight minute i think i already queued it up oh look at mika she was so prepared so yeah let me queue it up at the eight minute mark and then um so it's gonna jump into the the audio version and you're gonna learn more about princess hot chicken and why i'm i'm even talking about this topic implied 
but with a furious twist. She saturated the bird in cayenne pepper and other spices. No doubt Prince was expected to suffer, and did, but he also enjoyed the experience. He began replicating the spicy fried chicken and selling it on weekends out of his home. He eventually opened a small restaurant, the Barbecue Chicken Shack, which became beloved in the black community. It became popular with white people, too, especially after the restaurant moved to a location near the Grand Ole Opry. Under Jim Crow, the princes were not free to dine wherever and however they wanted, or to use the front door of white establishments, but they never told their own customers where to sit or what door to use. The matter handled itself. Black patrons sat up front, whites entered through the back door and sat in back. Nashville, which was chartered in 1806 on the Cumberland River, is closer to Bowling Green, Kentucky, Union Territory, than to Memphis. By the start of the Civil War, it was one of the country's 60 largest cities, with a population of 17,000. The Union Army saw Nashville as a potential supply center and captured the city in 1862. Escaped slaves flocked there, adding to an already sizable African-American population. The Prince family had been enslaved at a plantation south of town. Thornton Prince III seems to have been born around 1893. The civil rights leader Ralph Abernathy once said that in the black community of the 1930s, Chicken was the best of all meals to serve, especially on Sundays. Gospel bird was better than ham, better than pork chops, better even than roast beef or steak. Timothy Charles Davis, in his cookbook, points out that poor people don't tend to document their lives the way well-off people do, and that American journalists of the early 20th century covered only high-end white tablecloth places, not working-man joints peopled by African-Americans. The name of the girlfriend whose attempt at revenge inspired a culinary phenomenon is unknown. The story is so perfect it almost, almost seems created out of whole cloth, Davis noted, but he added, does the lobster roll have such a story? I think not. The chef and TV personality Carla Hall, a Nashville native who made hot chicken the main attraction at her former restaurant in Brooklyn, has said that whatever the details about Thornton Prince III's love life, the chicken ain't nothing but the truth. After Prince died, around 1960, the restaurant got passed around to relatives, eventually landing with Jeffries, the granddaughter of one of his brothers. She made some tweaks— First, she changed the name to Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. Hot chicken is not barbecue, she told me. She replaced the restaurant's 19-inch cast-iron skillets with deep-frying vats. Then, after a mother asked her why Prince didn't serve chicken that wouldn't terrify her children, Jeffries introduced varying levels of spiciness. The current maximum level, triple X hot, is irresistible to spice hounds and fools, the menu board, hanging above the order window, features an image of flames. YouTube is filled with footage of people trying hot chicken. Rendered speechless, they cough, tear up, towel off. The best way to eat fried chicken is with your hands, but Nashville hot chicken leaves the fingertips glistening with red residue. 
Jeffrey still talks about the customer who made the mistake right. of wiping his I just his wanted eyes. to play a little bit more, even though we do know that the Davida Davison clip that I aired um, pre- prior to this one kind of went over some of the history of Princess Fried Chicken. I just wanted to hear. I thought the I thought the author um, uh, the author of this article, Paige Williams. Um, did a great job in how like describing uh, Princess Hot Chicken and, and the folklore, the the, the legend that it, it it emerged from and and passed down and described what Andre Prince Jeffries looks like to a T. Whenever you Google images of her, um, so I just wanted to just play that audio because the New Yorker again is where I found I, I stumbled across this. Um, in the remaining ten minutes or so of the show, I just really want to kind of drive it home and kind of make my thoughts um, more cohesive in, in that. This is a discussion, again, about not just who gets to use whatever recipes, who gets to to employ whatever colloquial phrases. This is about making sure that we don't erase those rich experiences and stories like the origin story of Nashville hot chicken, that we don't just whitewash food and other types of cultural expressions that are uniquely black or uniquely whatever, like fill in the blank with whatever. Um, I have friends here who are restaurateurs who talk, who give great thought and, and they they take a beat or two when they talk, when they um, want to change a menu. And if they want to um, incorporate other ethnic influences, my friends give it great thought and contemplation before they do it. And if they do um, want to use another culture or borrow from another culture's um, food, um, you know, food canon, they do so respectfully. They do so mindfully. And they do it they do it in a way where they acknowledge, hey, this is not this is not my identity, but we we support this type of food. We support we want to share this experience with more people. And so there's a right way and a wrong way to approach this. And maybe that's even wrong to some people. Maybe some people think like, hey, completely hands off. And I respect that too, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I think I think in Charleston what I, I don't see enough of is hey, can we critique the use the common practice of using black folklore and black traditions to make these um, white owned establishments filthy rich. You know, what they've done is um, they've erased, they've taken away the Aunt Jemima. Like no restaurant in their right mind would use Aunt Jemima or, uh, you know, a black Uncle Ben or, 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 you know, the cream or wheat guy. They wouldn't use that type of iconography, that racist iconography in, in 2019, 2020. I hope they wouldn't. Um, but what they do is way more subtle uh, and way more insidious, which is I'll, you know, they'll come up with a, uh, a, a menu that's direct, directly from either Gullah traditions or um, just black southern soul food traditions and not even acknowledge the um, the roots. And then they'll insert it with, you know, and I, I'm so sorry, I don't believe some of these stories that, oh, my great Aunt Remus passed this down, my, my great uncle um Jedediah passed down this no we know this we we've seen we're seeing a lot of these stories unearthed like with the Jack Daniels story I didn't know I was I was 38 years old I'm 38 right now I was 38 years old when I found out that Jack Daniels was invented by a black man you see how that erasure takes place and how he was not just he didn't just come up with the recipe he he worked alongside Jack Daniels you see how that erasure takes place and what that does and thank God for the food historians or the or just the people who who give a damn. Thank God for those people who unearth these stories and bring them to light because this is a, this is a practice that has got to stop. Or at least if I can't stop it because I'm one woman, 
I know I won't be able to stop this practice, but what I can do is say, uh-uh, I peep game. You know, you thought you was slick, you know what I mean? You name me your stuff, you know, something that sounds uniquely black. Oh, you serving black dishes, huh? How about you know that I'm I'm seeing what you're doing, and I want you to think about this and be very intentional about other menu choices that you use moving forward. How about we just do that, right? How about we put our foot on the necks of some of these people with privilege and power? Um, there's another there's another um, thing that um, a topic that I caught, got some heat from from my own community regarding. I did, I won't even call it heat. It's like a, a, a Facebook clapback, but basically. Someone brought to me, which often happens, someone brought the issue to me that there is a, um, uh, what are you calling it? A, like a Defusky Island, Tides and Island Vibes, Gullah uh, Food Festival popping up. It had actually been publicized. I saw one of my favorite local publications, digital publications, Holy um, Holy uh, City Center publicized this oh new Gullah food festival popping up on Devusky Island. I'm like, oh what? That sounds dope. Then you you dive into it and you're like, oh wait, whoa 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 whoa. Oh, this is that island that cost thirty thousand dollars to be a member of. Oh wait a minute, the money's going to all proceeds are going to going back to them. Wait a minute, this is underwritten by the city of Hill. Wait, okay, so all proceeds they're making pure. Wait, the tickets are what upwards of three thousand dollars. Not including your hotel, then you realize real quick they put Gullah on a, a prohibited, a cost prohibitive event that's tailored to be a marketing, uh, a marketing ploy for white folk to buy more property away from black families down there uh, in the Defusky area, right? And so when I when I raised that point along with someone else, I got some clapback because there are black chefs cooking there, and I yo shout out to them, y'all gotta eat. But when we do that, because we're all going to be tokenized, right? If you're a member of a marginalized community, we're all going to be tokenized. But if when we are tokenized, it's important that A, you pay us what we're worth. And B, you hold people accountable and you put some standards in place so that it's not just them buying your likeness or your skill set. That you say, hey, you know what? This festival is problematic let's stay away from the words gullah let's just call it an island or south carolina or palmetto state food festival wait a minute i need to know up front how much you're charging um admission how much is admission i need to know if there's something that black folk can access you know you can't just come and take our culture and pay us what 500 700 dollars to participate when you're charging other people uh, uh, thousands of dollars to attend and also you're not going to use gullah to describe an event that's complete with horseback riding on the beach. Ain't nothing gullible about this 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 island vibes and tides festival um down there. Um it's nothing. This is this is uh, just marketing for the real estate companies down there to to get people to just start looking at that land and take more heirs property and all the other jazz. So we have to be more critical as as black folk. I don't believe in us being gatekeepers. Well, maybe when it comes to colonizers, I do believe that we need to be a little bit more firm and, and stalwart in terms of like, now nah, you're not going to take every, everything's not for nothing. You know, everything can't be for sale. But I do believe in us being torchbearers um, and keepers of the flame. And that does require us to tell folk no or to, it requires us to give people strict conditions by which they can interact with us, be a little bit more firm with how people can play with us. Like, okay, you 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 wanna you wanna come and you want me to cook, you want me to come, you want me to sing, you come, you wanna anything it it deals with anything you giving of yourself, emotional labor or physical labor, the price needs to be right. 
the price needs to be right. And maybe that's when you start negotiating investment in something else. Maybe that's when you negotiate, hey, in lieu of paying me directly or in lieu of paying me a reduced fee, I want X amount of the proceeds to go to Sally Ann on Defusky. Or I want X amount of the proceeds to go to this Gullah Festival. I want you to get me into the room with the people of Hilton Head, the, 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 the government, and I want to do my own festival next year. So in lieu of my payment, in lieu of using my name to market your, to add legitimacy to your effort, I want you to, I want you to use your privilege to get me in a space to where I can empower and promote my people's cooking. I'd like to see more of that because taking a check ain't enough. It's just not enough. Toni Morrison, and I'm not going to quote her directly because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up, but she says something like, you know, one of our responsibilities is once we get on as black people, once we um, reach a certain level of success, our job is to, is to reach out and bring up somebody else. And that's what we need to start doing. So if we are going to participate in food and Bev, and if we are going to show up to, to certain, you know, on certain panelists, we need to start holding white people, white, white power brokers, who are perpetuating the problems and inequality here, we need to hold them to account. I tell people all the time who invite me to their stages, I say, I'm not I'm not who you think I am. I don't know if you think I'm just positivity and kumbaya. I, I bring heat because I make sure that I hold people in, in positions of power accountable. I'm not saying that I'm exceptional or anything like that, but we need to have a, a, a culture of challenging challenging oppressive systems and practices it's not enough for us to be in the room we have to hold those in power accountable and so um that's something that is just that's my take on that i'm not saying black people don't don't get your bag get your bag by all means get your bag um you know your your work deserves to be spread out i, I hope all the black people who um, traffic in Gullah spaces and Gullah arts and cuisine. I hope all of us, I hope y'all go to Paris. I hope you'll go to wherever y'all want to go, across the globe, you know, everywhere. I don't know why I said Paris specifically, but just go anywhere you want. Take Gullah, be a Gullah ambassador, but make sure focus paying and make sure that you are uplifting and helping to liberate your people by creating access. Um, I want to give shout outs real quick. A past two weeks, I've been in North Carolina several times, either fleeing Hurricane Dorian or um, working with Black Voters Matter. Shout out to them. Um, while I was in Elizabethtown, North Carolina, a couple of weeks ago, I was able to go to Cindy's drive through. Um, Cindy's is a black owned establishment. Phenomenal Southern food. I know this is Charleston. You're like, what, what are you talking about? Um, please let's, let's support businesses like Cindy's in Elizabethtown. Let's support places like Nana's and Hannibal's. Um, when you go back up to Columbia, try True Barbecue. Um, there's a Soul Food Vegan truck, I believe. Um, is it Peace of Soul? Peace of Soul? Like the peace sign? Um, support black-owned vegan. Um, people were offering different types of, of, of cuisine. Um, let's make sure that we just hold people accountable. Support Denitra with Swank Desserts. Support Elena Ruth. I think she's launching her, her juicing business. Um, push the city to have more events like the Soul Food Sessions that came from Charlotte. Push the city to, to put money behind that here so we can have our own Soul Food Sessions. Um, really think long and hard about how you interact with black culture. Don't always think, white folk who are listening, don't always think that this culture is for you to just come and consume and take from. Now, you had to put in on this. And there's a cost to it. So make sure that you are make, paying black folk appropriately for their services. Don't erase us. Do not try to erase us from these cookbooks. We invented the cookbook. We invented it. We brought rice. We brought, we brought peanuts. We brought all that over here. We taught you how to grow it, how to cook it, how to enjoy it. So until next time, y'all, 
you know, make sure y'all support black-owned restaurants and black-owned um, restaurateurs. Stay black for all my people out there. Everybody else, use your privilege. Start using that privilege. Thanks.